What are possibilities of launching Max into space? There is no possibility at this time. This is not going to be easy. A group of young astronaut hopefuls plan to spend their summer learning about space, but find themselves accidentally launched into orbit. This week, we talk about Canada's contribution to the space program, how to prevent Martians from stealing your oxygen, and the mustache of a man in charge. Then we find out if space camp stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say The movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Test of Time podcast. I am James Brief, and finally, something Alan will agree with, we are going to spend an entire podcast talking about space. Well, now, hold on a second. We'll be talking about a movie called Space Camp, only half of which takes place in space. So we're not going to spend the whole time talking about space. Uh, guess what, Al? What's that? I went to my first Mets game since the whole pandemic started. You did? How was it? It was great. I actually, uh, I went to City Field to see the old Metropolitans, and they beat the Colorado Rockies 3-1. to one. It was a good game. And um, I actually sat in a section. It was actually the vaccinated section. So very interestingly, Ooh. like you had to go through a special gate, and you had to show proof of vaccination. And it was pretty cool. Like when you walk around in the hallways, you still kept your mask on. But like when you're outside, like man, you didn't uh, you didn't need your mask on. That is cool. To me, it's only tricky because Courtney and I are vaccinated, but the kids aren't vaccinated because they're too young. Sounds like a date night for mom and dad. I mean, I don't think that's what Courtney wants to do on a date night. Um, and and we could you you can bring kids who are unvaccinated into the vaccinated sections, but then people are closer. Or we could bring them into the unvaccinated sections, and then we'd be more spaced out. But then we'd be surrounded by unvaccinated people. So I don't really know exactly which one I'm more comfortable with. I have to think about that one a little bit more. I don't know. TBD. Well, I'll tell you that uh, even though people there were, you know, supposedly vaccinated in that section, they were definitely still the crazy people, you know, just screaming. And you're thinking like, hmm, well, this guy probably doesn't have COVID, but tuberculosis is still a thing. And, you know, <laughs> like this guy, I mean, he was not coughing or anything, but like we're like, you know, eight rows uh, behind this guy. And we're like, I miss this, you know, even though it was very, very spread out, even the vaccinated section. Um, Everyone was spread out in the stadium. We kept joking, uh, my sister and I, that it looked like a Mets game in like early September. You know, on a typical year. You've been to those games, right, Al? Many times with friend of the show and member of the Six Timers Club, Darren, uh, he and I would just randomly go to games all the time and we would just decide that day and get crappy tickets in the cheap seats. And, you know, yeah, the stadium would be empty. It was awesome. 
But um, small things you notice, like when I got a hot dog, I wanted I wanted the works, you know, sauerkraut, and, uh, mustard, everything, and. You know, they used to have like a fixin' bar and like they would yeah, have like sure. whatever weird combinations you like. You like mayonnaise or relish on your burger and chicken fingers and hot sauce. They have like 12 pumps for you. And, you know, you can make your own. You can make your own little Russian dressing. Those are all gone. Obviously, they're sure. not, you know, they're not COVID friendly. Everyone, you know, doing that, licking their fingers of their chicken fingers. So, um, <laughs> you know, they hand you that. It's packets of mustard, like little cups of sauerkraut. And there's no guys in the stadium screaming, hot dog, hot dog here. You know, you have to buy everything at the concessions. It was interesting, but uh, good to be back, Uh, you know, starting to come back. And I think this was, you know, appropriately spread out. Nice, nice. All right. Well, I will consider that. Maybe I'll go to a game. Uh, But either way, let's go Mets. So today we're going to talk about Space Camp because the movie is turning 35 years old. And I had assumed that you had seen this a million times, but last week you'd mentioned that you'd only seen it once and I had never seen it. But I think the idea of this movie still sounded cool to me as a kid, or actually not really the movie, but just the fact that Space Camp existed I kind of was like, oh, Space Camp, maybe I'd want to do that. And I think maybe I floated it to my mom at one point and she was like, uh, no. I think one, because it's very expensive. And two, because I probably said it after this movie came out, which was after the Challenger exploded. And even though no one at Space Camp really goes to space accidentally, like what happens in this movie, I think my mom was still just like, yeah, that's not going to happen. Did you ever want to go to space camp? I was jealous of every kid that went to space camp. I mean, (laughs) seriously, yes, I wanted to go. And I didn't see this movie as a kid, but I knew the general premise. And the movie is kind of mostly famous for its unfortunate release date. It was ultimately released uh, in June of 1986. And, of course, on January 28th, 1986, the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded a minute and a half uh, after takeoff. For the first uh, 30 years of spaceflight, for the most part, including Neil Armstrong and all these people that went to space, and including the Soviets, these were generally military people. And, you know, Air Force, and, you know, these were the right stuff, uh, men and women. But this space was uh, was special for one reason. I'm sure you know the, the reason why this particular tragedy was so horrible. Well, yeah, of course. It, it had uh, that teacher on it. Krista McAuliffe. Yes, I forgot her name, uh, but that was a big deal. And I think maybe I watched this launch in school. I think like a lot of people did. And I'm actually not totally sure about this. You've heard the thing where like some memories aren't always reliable. Like you've heard stories from other people and then you think maybe that you remember something that happened to you when it didn't really happen to you. I'm not 100% sure that this happened, but the memory that may or may not have happened to me is sitting in an auditorium watching the launch and then seeing the explosion and then, you know, the teacher kind of panicking and turning the TV off and uh, then having to have a pretty horrible, uncomfortable conversation. And it would have been tragic had this teacher not been on board, of course, but because there was that civilian there, it definitely made it sadder, especially to a room full of little kids. You know, this was a big deal. And this film was, you know, of course, envisioned before this happened. Yeah, the movie was 
conceived and shot and finished before the Challenger explosion. It was just unfortunate timing that it happened to be scheduled for release the same year. And, you know, that definitely impacted the way people reacted to the movie. So um, this movie is about a group of kids who attend, well, you know, space camp. Uh, there's Catherine, who wants to be the first female shuttle commander. There's Kevin, an arrogant hotshot who thinks he's too cool for all this learning. Rudy, this guy loves science, but he's unsure of his abilities. Tish, she kind of looks like a typical valley girl, but in fact, she's brilliant. And then there's Max, a 12-year-old boy who's obsessed with Star Wars. At first, the group doesn't get along well, and they fail in their simulated flights. But unexpectedly, they get launched into space, along with their instructor, Andy. And then they have to learn to work as a team. Otherwise, they might not make it back to Earth. Dun, dun, dun. So I don't need to ask you if this was a hit at the box office. I know that it was a flop because of the fact that it came out five months after the Challenger explosion and people just didn't want to see a movie about kids going into space and there being a tragedy, calamity, whatever. Right, right. It had a $20 million budget, and that's that's pretty significant. And you can really see where they put the budget, at least in certain scenes. And you know, the movie opened in June of 1986, and this was less than five months uh, after the Space Hell Challenger tragedy. And it wound up making $10 million total in the box office. And not all of that goes back to the producers. So this was a major flop. But what what is very interesting about this film, and you must have noticed, is the amazing cast and crew of this film, Al. Oh, yeah, of course. It's got Kate Capshaw, who... I really think the only other movie I've ever seen her in is Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I looked at her IMDb and nothing else leapt out at me. If there's some other movie that she's in that we should really watch, listeners, let us know at Test of Time Pod. But I am quite confident this was the second Kate Capshaw movie I've ever seen. I think that's the only Spielberg film she ever appeared in, right? I don't think she acts in his films, does she? No, I mean, I don't think she really acts anymore, but Temple of Doom is famously where she met Steven Spielberg and they got married and have been married since the mid-80s, early mid-80s, I think. Yeah. And you also have Leah Thompson, of course, best known for the Back to the Future movies, at least in my eyes. Some might know her from Caroline in the City on NBC, Thursday night, must-see TV in the 90s, Al. (laughs) Sure, sure. My apologies to any really big Caroline in the City fans. Uh, Kelly Preston, who I sort of just know best as John Travolta's wife, uh, or late wife, I should say. She tragically passed away last year. But she was also in Twins, which is a movie that we definitely will review on the podcast at some point. Oh, we'll be reviewing uh, several of her films. Uh, She was in Jerry Maguire. We're going to get that film done. Uh, She was a great actress. Um, You know, we've never reviewed a film with uh, Oscar winner uh, Joaquin Phoenix in it. But this is the second film that we've reviewed that credits Leaf Phoenix uh, in the credits. What was the first one? Ah, you don't remember. No, I don't. I'll give you a hint. In my day, Grover Cleveland was president. Oh, right. He was in Parenthood. That's right. I forgot about that. Yes, 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 yes. And Larry B. Scott, who plays Rudy, I recognize him from Revenge of the Nerds, another movie we will do on the podcast at some point. 
Oh, absolutely. Um, then there's Tom Skerritt. He's a great actor. He's a kind of a character actor, always kind of that, uh, you know, he's the authority guy. He's got the haircut of a man in charge. And mustache of a man in charge. Exactly. And I don't know if you know uh, what film I'm thinking of, but this is the second time he plays a NASA administrator who's involved in denying a highly qualified woman her chance to go into space. I mean, I assume you're thinking of contact, but he doesn't stop a woman from going into space in this movie. I mean, he's, he informs her that she's not going into space. Yeah, but he's not, like, blocking her. Right, right, right. I just find it interesting that it's like, you know, he's playing, like, NASA administrator twice. So these are all fine actors and actresses, but um, there was a crew member that I was like, wow, when I saw this person in there. I mean, did you do a double take and, and, and certainly was, was well-received in this film? Uh, you're talking about John Williams? Absolutely. He does the music, and it's totally John Williams-esque score. I did not do a double take. I feel like he's done like so many scores, like seeing his name in the credits is like, oh, he did this one too. But it's not like, what? You know, it's pretty standard. It was a surprise to me. I just didn't think that they would have had such a, you know, luck to have. Or no, not luck. This is 1986 or 1985 when they made this film. Like he's already done Indiana Jones, E.T., Star Wars. I mean, guess $20 million. They paid for their uh, their score. And the score was great. I'll say that right now. Sure. But uh, the film opens in a little prologue, and we see a, a young uh, Andy, this young girl who uh, she's watching a rocket launch, and she yells, John Glenn winked at me. Al, do you know who John Glenn was? Yes, he was an astronaut. He was the first man to orbit the Earth. So, you know, this young girl grew up with the space program and she wants to be an astronaut her whole life. Flash forward to modern day, modern day being the mid-80s. Andy is now, she's working tangential to uh, you know, going to space. She's working at NASA. She's working on the space shuttle. And we find out that she's been denied that she's not going to go up in this year's uh, class of astronauts. And then her husband, Tom Skerritt's character, he informs her that she will then be at space camp. And she's like, oh, man, do I have to go? But yeah, she goes along. And then we meet all of the kids who are there. There's Kevin, who's like a spoiled rich kid. And he rolls up to space camp blasting Forever Man by Eric Clapton out of his Jeep. So, you know, he's a bad boy. I don't really think of that song as like a bad boy song, but whatever. It's fine. It's a good song. And he is immediately taken by Catherine, who's played by Leah Thompson. He thinks that she's really pretty. And she's immediately like pointing out all the stuff there and she knows her stuff. And you can tell she's not just like, you know, a know nothing camper. She's actually like, you know, a really, really well knowledge young woman. Right. And she wants to be the first female shuttle commander, but she's in Andy's group and Andy assigns her to be pilot and she assigns Kevin to be shuttle commander. And Catherine thinks that's not fair. But the reason Andy does it is because she's trying to teach Kevin some responsibility because he's clearly like not interested in anything. So she makes him shuttle commander and she thinks that Catherine would make a good pilot. Uh, there's also this little kid, Max, who's uh Leaf slash Joaquin Phoenix, and he should be in junior camp, but he's like, no, no, come on, I know what I'm doing, let me in, come on, please, and Andy's like, fine. Because he's done junior camp several years already, and he really wants to go to the old camp. 
Right. He's like, I'm ready. Come on. And he's so adorable as a little kid. There's Rudy. There's Tish. Tish, by the way, says that she has photographic memory. Or maybe she doesn't use those exact words, but basically she says that she's memorized everything she's ever looked at. I did like three seconds worth of research because I was like, is that a real thing? Apparently, some people think it is and some people think it isn't. Do you have any more background on that? I forgot what they call it, idyllic memory or something. Something. Uh, Something like that. It's not something that uh, I diagnose. I mean, if someone says, I memorize everything (laughs) I have, I'm like, you have whatever that term is. Smart kid. It just strikes me as something that's like a convenient plot device in movies, TV shows, whatever. I think it's a little less lazy than giving her glasses. You know, it is a very quick twist that you find out that she's no valley girl, which is like an 80s term for like, you know, a know-nothing girl. Hee-hee, because you think she's so pretty that uh, she won't know this stuff. But like basically the first sentence she makes, like, no, she's actually very intelligent. But I do give them credit at least for not making her an 80s nerd. No, they're very clearly playing against type. Like she's got like the big feather hair and she's like snapping the bubble gum and she says like, cool, whatever. But yeah, she's also brilliant. And we should talk about one of the other main characters in this movie who is a robot named Jinx. And he's an 80s robot, Al. Now, that's different than, like, your modern robot. It's not Roomba. It's an 80s robot. And we've seen these robots in, like, Rocky Four, a robot in the 80s, especially in a movie, and especially with the magical word of a NASA robot, can basically do anything. This is a short-circuit-type robot. You know, it's almost sentient. It is, in fact, sentient. And the way that they explain Jinx is that he was a brilliant robot created by NASA, but he's a little too glitchy. So NASA, like, got rid of him and junked him in space camp where he, like, holds wrenches and stuff. No, they said he's too literal. And he will question every idiom you say. So he wasn't very useful. But yeah, that's a software issue. But do you realize how amazing the hardware of this thing is? I agree with you. It's very weird that Jinx was in space camp. Yeah, exactly. It's clearly like tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment. You don't just be like, eh, it's garbage. And you just let, you know, some random kid at space camp take him. However, I do have to say that every single time Jinx spoke, I laughed. I love everything he says. I'll tell you, I was going to be ready to hate Jinx, and I didn't hate Jinx. Um, I kind of wish they might have resolved it a little better, but I actually kind of, I I agree with you, in an 80s vibe, I dug him. (laughs) Yes, exactly. He skated close to the edge between lovable and really annoying, but he didn't go over. But I'll say that uh, Jinx was surprisingly a cute little character. And definitely six-year-old James wanted a Jinx, or or would have if you had seen this movie right away. I mean, definitely six-year-old Alan would have wanted a Jinx. Oh, there's a lot of elements to this film that are like, oh, this is so cool. And, you know, I told you I was jealous of anyone that went to space camp. This piqued my interest. Even though I knew it was a movie, the idea, wait a second, 
they're going in the space shell, a space camp, like on a rocket launch. I didn't know they do that. That's freaking amazing. You know, probably won't launch, but it happened in this film. You know, uh, it right. was pretty cool. These kids, like for some of them, this is like the minor leagues equivalent of like this is the NASA recruitment pool. You You get a sense of like that is not really what it is. Well, doing some research today, I saw that, in fact, some people who went to space camp did, in fact, go on to become astronauts. I mean, it's not like half of them, you know, because there aren't that many astronauts and however many kids go to space camp every year. But it is a thing like it is kind of astronaut prep for some people, at least. I'm sorry, don't get the wrong impression. I'm just saying it's, uh, I had this uh, fantastic idea because of the concept of this film that these were astronauts in training. And the film kind of gives it that edge. Like at one point, uh, Andy is like, I'm so hard on you, Catherine, because when you're in space, you're going to need this training. And I'm like, she's got a number of years before she goes to space. But uh, sure, it, it is a really interesting uh, thing that these kids are definitely going to be from a pool of kids that are a little more interested in science. And I think it's realistic that there's going to be a bunch of Kevins that are there. And it's like their parents think, oh, we'll whip some uh, good sense into them. We'll send them to space camp so they won't have any hooligans to hang out with this summer. You know, like there's probably kids that right. don't want to be there. There's a couple nerds. There's a couple random kids. Uh, these kids are all together. They're on the blue team. And Kevin wasn't supposed to be on the blue team. But he like switched uh, tags with some like other space camp nerd. And he got to be on the team because he thinks uh, Leah Thompson's character is cute. But they're going in like a space shuttle simulator and they're simulating weightlessness. But Catherine actually, she keeps crashing the, uh, the space shuttle because she's the pilot. Right. And she's down on her luck. But eventually Kevin asks her on a date and she says yes. And they kind of sneak off into the night. They're not supposed to do that. And they're talking about like, why do you work so hard? How come you don't try at all? And Kevin has this totally mid 80s line where he says, what's the point of trying? We're all going to get nuked anyway, because people back then thought that there was going to be a nuclear war with the the Soviet Union and everyone was going to get blown up any minute now. And meanwhile, while they're on this date, Jinx ends up snitching on them because Andy and the Tom Skerritt character, they can't find them and they're looking everywhere. And then Max knows where they are and Max told Jinx and then Jinx tells them where they are. And Catherine and Kevin are busted and Andy and Catherine have this like heart to heart. And, and Andy's like, I want you to make sure you have every I dotted and every T crossed because as a woman, you have to work twice as hard and you have to be absolutely perfect. And I thought that that was like a good speech, you know, like it was motivational and, you know, explains why she's tough on her. And, and sure, it's going to be even harder for her to be the first female space commander, but Every I dotted and every T crossed. I feel like that expression doesn't really stand the test of time. I mean, that's only if you're writing shorthand. And who does that anymore? <laughs> I mean, I wonder if it might just be one of those things that like one day someone will explain what every I dot and what every T crossed means. But you know, the expression still stands. Uh, you know, these astronauts, they practice like 400 different simulations of what will happen. And they practice every one of them until they're perfect in every one of them. So sure. And I'll give the movie license that, yes, this is sort of a training or recruitment pool for future NASA astronauts. You know, you just got to be like, look, you can't uh, mess around. And like if your team does doesn't uh, work together. You guys are all going to burn up. What are you going to do? Hey, hey, hey. 
I don't know why she's suddenly Joe Pesci, but sure, okay. So through Jinx, he's been caught. Kevin yells at Max and makes him uh, run away crying. And he says over and over he wishes he could go into space. And Jinx overhears Max uh, wishing to go to space. And a little earlier, Max had told Jinx that they're friends forever. And he takes that completely literally. So he's like, we're friends forever. I got to help my friend. So... The next day, these guys, uh, they all tour the space shuttle, and at least to this movie's credit, they didn't tour the space shuttle Challenger. They toured the space shuttle Atlantis, and, you know, it's all cool stuff, and I'll bet you they filmed this, uh, you know, in at least a realistic replica, because it was pretty cool looking. All the kids get to go into their, uh, you know, their assigned seats. Pilot, go the pilot seats like we practiced. The one weird thing that I don't think is realistic is that NASA does a real engine, like, test on this shuttle the whole shuttle's vibrating they're like whoa this is really cool they do say that this is like a very special thing that doesn't normally happen in space camp that only these cadets are going to get to be there for this engine test but you're right it does seem like isn't this a bad idea shouldn't they not do this and Jinx is talking to this other computer, trying to figure out how he can send his friend Max to space. And the thing that they come up with is thermal curtain failure. I have no idea if that's real. It sounds stupid, though, because, like, why would you throw the word curtain in there? If you're going to make something up, don't make something sound confusing. Like, why is there a curtain on the space shuttle? I mean, I get it. It means something else. But Jinx is like, We need to figure out how to get him into space. Oh, we'll make this failure, and then the shuttle will have to crash, but then the only way to avoid that crash will be to send the shuttle into space. And it's like, there's four different things that need to happen, all of which seem like really, really filled with potential for this thing to go wrong, and yet Jinx and the NASA computer seem to think it's a good idea. I just thought it was like really weird, and I definitely felt like if I was watching it as a kid, I would have been super confused of like, why does Jinx want thermal curtain failure? It basically, he had started ignition, and you know, you're sitting on basically a bomb. It was some kind of techno babble that if we don't launch, this whole thing's going to ignite. We're going to blow up on the on the launch pad. I will agree with you that this is incredibly, like, way over-technical. You have a robot responsible for this. Just make the robot launch the shuttle. Sir, we can't get in. We're locked out. And Jinx is just going, friends forever, friends forever. You know, that's all you have to do. It's really overly complicated. And I don't like that basically NASA launched them into space. But it's a major uh, part of the plot. And the shuttle is basically just like bolted onto two huge rockets that are just going to burn like, you know, 10,000 gallons a second, something enormous. And once they've exhausted their fuel, which takes, you know, a minute or two before you get all the way up, you got to get rid of those huge things. They just successfully release the uh, big uh, booster stages and they're in space. And, uh, you know, I have to say the special effects are really not bad with uh, the weightlessness. Some special effects are really bad. For some reason, every shot of Earth looks like a cartoon. But I think the weightlessness effects were were very well done. Yeah, I think the reason that the Earth shots look crappy is because 
This is footage that they got from NASA. This is before they had HD cameras. You know, they had what they had and it was low quality footage. I mean, I think there wasn't a way for them to really improve it, I guess, unless they spent a lot of money with matte animations or visual effects or something. Although actually thinking about it, they probably could have done that and it might have looked better. I don't know. Maybe they were going for realism, but lo-fi. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, Earth looked like a random Star Trek planet with like random land masses. It just seems like it should have been a little more identifiable, but whatever. I think some of the outer uh, shots of the shuttle flying through space and, you know, with Earth as a backdrop look pretty uh, bad and dated. But um, there are other shots that are actually pretty good. You know, everything inside, to me, looks like it's realistic. I don't know if it is. I mean, I've actually been to Johnson Space Center, so there's like a, a shuttle uh, that you could go in. I don't know if you went to the one at the uh, Intrepid Museum. You couldn't go inside of it, but it looked realistic enough. No, I have never been. But I will say, just in terms of like cool shots, I do like the moment where they're so excited to be like floating in the space shuttle and it's so cool. It's like we're flying. And then I forget which character it is. One of the kids goes by the window and just stops because they are staring out at Earth from space. They don't say like, wow, look at that. They just stop. And then all the other characters go around them and they just stare out of the window too. And I just thought that was like a pretty powerful moment. It felt authentic. It felt like that's what would happen. It would be like, wee, cool, I'm floating. And then you just catch a glimpse of the Earth out the window. And then all you can do is just stare. I really like that moment. Also, that was really the John Williams score. But yeah. uh, the shuttle, and this makes sense, I guess, was not, uh, you know, space ready because it was just on the, you know, the deck for, you know, some tests. And they don't have a full, like, weak load of oxygen in there. They have about enough for, like, 14 hours, but it's going to take 17 hours for them to orbit the Earth and, and land in uh, Edwards Air Force Base. So they devise an idea to go to this place called Daedalus, which is the space station that's being built. I will give credit. I think Daedalus is like a cool name and like a good sounding name for a space station. Sure, I'll agree with that. Um, I thought, again, like the oxygen explanation could have been way simpler and way easier to follow. The first thing they say is that they have enough oxygen for 12 hours. And then they say that they need to get back to Earth in 12 hours. But then they're like, well, actually, it's going to be more like 14 hours. Like, just use different numbers. Like, they could have made it much simpler of like, we need 15 hours worth of oxygen and we have six. Just make it like really clear. And they were like stuck on 12 and 12 for a little while. And it was just unnecessarily confusing. I completely agree with you. I caught that. And for simplicity, I said the final conclusion, which was that they basically had 14 hours of air and they needed like 17 or 12 and 14, whatever it was. But um, I remember thinking that uh, when it was the same number of hours that they have left to land, I was like, oh, there's going to be a tense scene where they're kind of running out of air, but then they make it just in time. Right. But no, you're right. They should have just said, like, we have an hour's worth of air. And luckily, we're 40 minutes away from a space station. A space station that has extra oxygen strapped outside in a manner that makes it nearly impossible for any astronaut to get it. Any astronaut, Al? I mean, any 
adult astronaut. Like, well. why would you put... Yeah, and then they send the kid. Right, of course. But, like, why would you put the oxygen there in such a way where it's impossible to get? I understand that you want it to be, like, secured in some way because you don't want it to float off. I, I get that. But, like... It seems like they could have put it somewhere better than where they did. It was like, uh, sir, are you sure we want to lock the tanks in these cages that are inaccessible to any human arm? Yeah, like, are they worried Martians are going to steal it or something? It just makes no sense at all. But Andy goes to get the oxygen. She can't reach. So then Max goes. But they still give him, like, uh, you know, adult uh, spacesuit. So they just kind of like squish it up a little bit. But I assume <laughs> that the hardware, you know, the big tank, it's not a child-sized tank. And the helmet is not for kids. Like, I thought that this part was a little ridiculous because she couldn't fit in because she couldn't get the helmet and the uh, tank through the cage. But somehow Max was able to do it because his body is smaller. That to me didn't make sense. There's a lot of things in this sequence that don't make sense. And you're absolutely right about that. Also, when Max goes up to Andy and she's like, oh my God, what are you doing here? Like she should be able to hear him on the intercom. Like everyone else is talking to Max. And then moments later, when Max goes like shooting off into space, they're talking to each other over the intercom. So there's no reason why Andy would be surprised when Max shows up. She should be aware and she also should have been yelling at them no no don't send him and then they decide no no we have to like it's just weird that she's in the dark about that i agree and i totally thought that and i did think it was very interesting that max being i think he's supposed to be 12 years old and he is obsessed with Star Wars. And there's a mm-hmm. lot of Star Wars references. And he's terrified uh, of doing, like, the spacewalk. And then Kevin, like, he talks to him like Obi-Wan. And he basically quotes Star Wars. And that gives him the inspiration to act like Luke Skywalker would act. And he's able to, uh, you know, float over to Andy. I did think that was, you know, a very, very 80s thing. Because it really shows just how obsessed children were with uh, Star Wars. You mentioned a Star Wars quote from Rise of the Skywalker in a popular movie for 12-year-olds today. They're not necessarily going to know what the hell you're talking about. It's the Rise of Skywalker. But yes, I know what you mean. I totally get what you're saying. And I think, you know, use the force. That stuff does stand the test of time now. So it did work out. But then there's another thing that doesn't make any sense. When they get the oxygen back to the shuttle and they're trying to hook it up, apparently there's two blue valves that are there. And one blue valve is the right one. And one blue valve, if you hook the oxygen up, will create a giant fireball and everyone will die. I gotta think that someone at NASA would say, How about we make the blue one for the oxygen and red for the explosion one? Like, why would there be two blue ones? You have to use the blue next to the yellow, but not the blue next to the green. Like, this is unnecessarily complicated. It's basically instant death and only way to secure your life. Uh, Right right next to each other. Like, let's maybe label these things. Yeah, let's just label it O2. Just put an O2 on there. That's all. Sure. That was a little weird. But they listened to Rudy over Catherine's advice. So Catherine's a little peeved about it. But um, they successfully hook up the oxygen and they all have enough oxygen. But they still don't have enough oxygen to get to Edwards Air Force Base because they're only able to get one 
oxygen tank in as opposed to two because the second oxygen tank malfunctions, screams off into space, carrying Andy with it, and she gets knocked into the end of the shuttle bay door and she's knocked out cold. Luckily, she's tethered to uh, her spacesuit by a cord, but right at this time, NASA has taken control of the shuttle remotely and they're like, all right, we're going to help these kids out. We're going to send the shuttle back and we're going to autopilot in back for a landing. So they close the shuttle bay doors, but Andy is trapped outside when they close it. So seconds before NASA's about to take over, Catherine is uh, prompted to press this override button to override NASA's, uh, you know, they're trying to ride the shuttle. And she panics. And this is kind of the second time that she's a little peeved and uh, her self-esteem is knocked down a little bit because Kevin, at the last second, he hits the override button and they're able to open the shuttle bay doors and Max is able to pull Andy back in. I know what you're saying, but I think it's not peeved. I think she's disappointed in herself because she thinks of herself as a commander better than Kevin, but Kevin is a better leader and she is a better pilot. And so they have to have like a heart to heart and she has to come to terms with that. But it's fine because she has an important role to play. And so does Kevin. And so does everyone. Well, I think every single person's character flaw at the beginning of the film has now been fulfilled except for Catherine. And, you know, Rudy, he was able to get through all the technical things. He said he knew like the back of his hand. Kevin, he was able to be a shuttle commander and, you know, take a lead when he had to. And Andy was able to get to space. And Max, he was able to, you know, be like a Jedi and go to space like he wanted to and, you know, be brave. But uh, Catherine, she keeps failing. So it's kind of building up to the big thing. But uh, before the big thing, I want to say there's one part of this film. Um, they use this robotic arm to bring Max from the space shuttle over to the space station to get the O2 tanks. Do you know who makes the, uh, the arm, Al? Canada. Yes, that's right. I know. I know lots of things. Do you know how I know that? Did I mention it in the maybe Armageddon episode? Uh, maybe you did, but I know it because I was listening to the Smartless podcast and Will Arnett, who's Canadian, was talking about that, that like everyone in Canada is super proud of the Canada arm. That's right. And do you know what they call it? The Canadarm. That's right. It's called the Canadarm. And it has a big Canadian flag on it. So I just wanted to give a shout out to the Canadarm because I, I think the Canadarm, it's, it's always worked like really flawlessly. So kudos to our uh, neighbors up north. Thank you for their contribution. And thank you to the Smartless podcast for making me smarter. That's right. And uh, sorry, there's one person that hasn't really, uh, you know, had the redemption arc yet. And that's Tish, uh, in addition to Catherine. Tish, uh, you know, no one's really believed that she was really, uh, you know, as good as she says she is. And she's been trying to communicate with NASA because they don't have any communication. They only had shortwave communication, basically from the shuttle to the tower when they were at camp. They do have telemetry. So Tish uses Morse code to kind of flick some of the switches on and off. And eventually Jinx is able to show NASA that they're communicating and NASA is able to communicate with the space shuttle using Morse code and they're able to guide them in for a landing and uh, I don't know who thought of it uh, maybe it was either Tish or Catherine but one of them come up with the idea that they should land uh, not at White Plains which is a suburb of New York but uh, White Sands New Mexico it was a famous thing where like, the space shuttle had made an emergency landing there a couple of years earlier. So it's kind of like one of the backup space uh, shuttle runways. And that is real, which is maybe 
not so great in terms of like this movie is pure fiction sure it's about nasa but like they refer to a real emergency landing that a real space shuttle made in white sands which then does sort of make this feel a little bit more realistic which is probably not so great in light of the challenger explosion of course they weren't thinking about that when they made the movie they were like oh let's put some realistic stuff in that's a good thing yeah, one thing that irked me was, you know, these are very, very intelligent kids who know their stuff. And for some reason, they made it into like a puzzle that they could figure out uh, which place to go. Because they're like, white planes, white something, that's it, white sands. I mean, these kids know everything about the shuttle. And Andy had mentioned that they will know every single circuit in this place. Like, there's only like three runways. There's like Johnson Space Center... Cape Canaveral and and then White Sands. Like, there's not that many. I did think that was a little weird, but they're gonna land at White Sands and they've told NASA this because of the Morse code. And as they're coming in, things are getting rough. Right. But Catherine has her moment of triumph. She is able to remember her training. She's able to successfully pilot the ship down. Andy can't do it because she's injured from when the oxygen tank shot her into the the thing and she's out of it. So it has to be Catherine. And Catherine comes through. But not just Catherine. She's not able to do it until Kevin's able to kind of give her a little inspirational speech to get her through it. They work as a team They do. And then as they land, the movie ends. Like, I was very surprised by that. I really felt like there should have been the little epilogue, the little button, the scene where they all reunite and they hug each other. And Andy is reunited with her husband who's, you know, been worried sick at Mission Control. And Max gets to hug Jinx and something, some little button at the end. And there isn't. The shuttle lands and then fade to black. Yeah, it seems obvious, like copy Star Wars, like have an award ceremony where they award them junior astronauts, especially Max and the youngest astronaut in the history of NASA, you know, his cute little smile. It seems obvious to have that scene, but there isn't like he spent $20 million, like spend another like five grand, just like, you know. Point the camera at a wall and you know, give, him, give him a trophy or something, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Well, so that's the end of the film, Al. And I must ask you, uh, you know, this being the title of the podcast, Test of Time, does Space Camp stand the test of time? Well, look, there's a lot of things in here that don't stand the test of time. And there are a couple things that do. First off, Space Camp is still a thing. That does still exist. It's open in 2021. I guess they were closed last year because of the pandemic, which makes sense. But Space Camp is still a thing. You know, there are a couple like lines here and there that were weird and don't really stand the test of time. When Kevin first gets into the shuttle, he says, the only thing missing in here is a tape deck. And when Tish finds out that the Morse code is working and that NASA is talking back, she says, whip me, beat me, take away my charge card. NASA is talking. And I was like, what the hell does that mean? Whip me, beat me, take away my charge card? That is the weirdest phrase ever. I can't imagine people actually said that in 1986. But I think really a lot of the conversation has to boil down to Jinx. And Jinx, in some ways, does stand the test of time because it's an artificial intelligence that Max is talking to. And we all have artificial intelligences that we all talk to. You know, we have Alexas and Ceres and things like that. But 
first off, the AI now is programmed to not be literal and to kind of know certain phrases and idioms and things like that. But also, like, the idea of this particular robot, it's hokey and it makes you roll your eyes and it's just so silly. But then, like, when he says, Max and Jinx, friends forever, you just kind of go, oh, like, I kind of think that Jinx is my least favorite and most favorite part of this movie, which doesn't make sense, but that's kind of how I feel. Um, Unfortunately, I'm going to say this movie does not stand the test of time, even though space is cool and the idea of space camp is cool. There's so many little things that don't really work and don't really make sense. And it also kind of feels like NASA propaganda, like like a recruitment video, like join here, be an astronaut. Sorry, this came out five months after one of the greatest uh, catastrophes and disasters of the space program. Don't really think about that. Um that's unfortunate for everyone who worked hard on the movie, but um, yeah, I'm going to say that it doesn't really stand the test of time. What do you think, James? Well, I'm going to say this. I'm going to comment one thing on the box office. We are obviously well away from the uh, the space shuttle tragedy uh, of the Challenger. Unfortunately, there was another one, uh, you know, space shuttle Columbia, that burned upon reentry uh, you know, about 20 years later. And the space shuttle program has been retired since then. I will say this, outside of the totally unfortunate uh, box office window, this film should have been a hit. Like, this has a lot of elements that in the 80s, it should have made a lot of money. I'm talking financially, it should have been a hit. This is kind of Goonies in space. The film is it's very well directed. Um, the score is fantastic. The acting, I mean, I thought all the actors are, are competent, but Kate Capshaw, I actually thought she was actually very good in this film. Agree. You know, you could definitely see the potential for a lot of these future actors, you know, who go on to very successful careers. And I also forget how young Leah Thompson was. I remember as a kid thinking that she was more the mom and they kind of made her look young. This is 1985, 1986. Like, this is concurrent with Back to the future one like she's very young i forgot that um one thing i think about this film is that the premise overall is fantastic i read that they announced that um disney plus is going to be remaking the film and it's going to be something made for the streaming channel i think this film is great to be remade this tycoon owns z space you know obviously elon musk spacex and something 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 these kids get launched into space uh, and have to work together it's a really good premise i think the, the overall story is good unfortunately this doesn't wind up being Goonies in space, even though it had a lot of the elements of being Goonies in space. And that's just because a lot of the plot just isn't really good. I just really don't like how they launch into space. I don't like their little mission in space. I just don't think it ages well. Maybe as a kid I'd like it, but but to me it just needs to be a little tighter. And I really think the, the remake will, will fix these flaws. This film, it's not a terrible film. I thought it was going to be awful. And I'm wondering, does this film stand the test of time? Because it is definitely aged better than it was in 1986. You don't have this sick feeling in your stomach of this tragedy. You know, like watching a World Trade Center movie in 2002, you know. 
I agree. Like the fact that there is more time now between this movie and the Challenger explosion does help uh, from a test of time perspective. Yeah. I'm just going to finish it up here by mentioning a a previous film that is very similar to this, and that's Last Action Hero. And that's another film that I think has actually aged well relative to the huge panning it got when it was out. Unfortunately, it still didn't make a great film, even though the premise was fantastic. And same thing with this film. Really good cast and crew. The film itself is just missing a better screenplay. That's the only element that's missing. And it's being written by Mikey Day, uh, who is a really funny guy on Saturday Night Live. I would actually check out a remake of this film, but unfortunately, the 1986 effort does not stand the test of time. I agree with you that it doesn't stand the test of time. I do also kind of think, though, that the premise itself doesn't really stand the test of time. I feel like immediately people would have to be like, how? How do these kids accidentally go into space and it would have to be written in a way that is both believable that it could happen but also doesn't make nasa look incompetent i feel like you'd have to toe like a really tough line there there's a film on netflix right now it's called stowaway uh with anna kendrick uh tony collette uh Daniel Day Kim, and it's about a mission to Mars, and then I think there's three astronauts, and then there's a fourth guy. It's a stowaway film. You know, I agree with you that you need a, what are they called, a MacGuffin or a something. You just need something, 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 they're into space. Something in space is a challenge before they can get back down. I just happen to think that those two things were missing from this film to be good. I think it's very updatable. I get what you're saying. I think it's a tough needle to thread. Um, One other thing I did just want to mention, when you saw Max and Jinx like being best friends, did you think about her, the Spike Jones movie at all? No, I I haven't seen that film. I heard it's very good. I was just thinking that the voice was like a robotic uh, E.T. Well, yeah, but interesting trivia, Joaquin Phoenix got the role in her where he falls in love with A.I., Because in this movie, he was best friends with AI all those years earlier. That's very interesting. That's completely not true. I just made that up. That's not true at all. Alan, I got you for a second, maybe. Ow. So that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about a movie that's turning 40 years old. It's a movie that I've wanted to talk about for a long time. It's a Bill Murray movie. And he stars with Harold Ramis and John Candy. The movie is Stripes. We're going to talk about Stripes. I'm so excited. I've actually never seen it and always wanted to. So I'm a little worried. Is this going to be a comedy I've never seen that I'm going to really like? Or is this going to be like a Caddyshack situation? You know, a film that I'd always heard my whole life was hysterical. And then when I finally saw it, it wasn't that funny. So, you know, I'm hoping the comedy stands up. I'm excited to watch it. I'm excited to hear your reactions to it. So that'll be a great episode. As always, we want to hear from you. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Email us at testoftimepodcast at gmail.com. Check out our website, testoftimepod.com. You can find all of our old back episodes, which include some other movies about space. And if you want to hear James geek out about space. And we'll see you next week, everybody. Bye. Bye, everyone, in space, space, space.